The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to uh, be preaching the word of God to you this morning. But before I do, um, I'd like to honor a couple men. If uh, Tom and Jesse would come down forward here this morning. Um, Tom and Jesse have been serving as in the office of elder. Tom for, I don't even know how many years now, five, four, something like that. Jesse for two or three years. And they've been serving really well. And you, if you know them, you love them. They lead missional communities. They lead huddles. Uh, they meet every Wednesday morning with me and the other elders to pray for you and to make decisions. And um, the weight that they've been carrying is a heavy weight and a heavy burden. And um, the coronavirus has not made it any easier. Both of these are healthcare practitioners. Doc is a family doctor, and um, Jesse is a chiropractor. And so all of the stressors and all of the demands and all of the pressures have been uh, piling up, and they have both decided to take a sabbatical, so to take a time, uh, some time away from the office of elder and to be restored and to be rejuvenated in their soul. And uh, I just wanted to uh, let the, the church know, I want to pray for them. I want to tell them, again, I, how much I love them and how much I'm thankful to God for them. Um, now, listen, you can take your wife out or me. It's up to you. So either one, either one. Doc, that's me. Okay. No, just joking. Uh, and so we, uh, I just want to pray for them this morning and, uh, and, and, so, and let everyone know um, don't call them right now. <laughs> if you have problems, if you have issues, if you want counsel, uh, they're stepping away from the office of elder for a little while uh, just to be restored. And, uh, and so we want you to honor that. We also want you to pray for them and, uh, and uh, thank them for their service to us at, at Sacred City. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray for you guys. Father, I do thank you for Jesse and Tom. I thank you for the ways that they've served and cared and loved your people that the mantle of elder um, is, a, is a heavy weight and a heavy responsibility. And the, um, the issues of life that you deal with in counseling and uh, walking with people, they're heavy. And that's on top of the normal stuff of life and their careers and everything else. And so I thank you for calling them into this office, for giving, giving them to us for a, a season of time. And I ask now that they would have a special season of your grace where they could be restored, that you can meet them in a sabbatical, that you can meet them in their time away, and that you can do good work in their heart. I pray that you would restore their mind, you'd restore their heart, restore their, uh, even just their, their will, their, their um, ability to, to push and do hard things, that you would give that a break for a while and then you, and you would restore it. Um, let this be a sweet time for them and, and for their family. And we just thank you, and we ask your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. 
I really hope you can hear me out there. If you can't, I might die trying today. <clears throat> and that's kind of a joke, but it's really not. So if you don't know, I had a bit of a scare last week. Um, a few weeks ago, I had a small injury to my trachea while practicing jujitsu. Uh, my, my voice was kind of hoarse for about a week or so, but I didn't think much of it. Then last week after the second service, I went home and I was eating lunch and I kind of looked down and I swallowed and I was talking with my wife at the time and I, in a strange turn of events, when I swallowed, something in my throat snapped and it literally felt like when you crack your knuckles or you crack your back, but it was in my throat and it felt like my throat was dislocated. Uh, it hurt really bad and I, I could no longer swallow, so I called Doc <laughs> And I said, what do I need to do? And he said, go, you need to go to the ER. So I went to the ER. Uh, you know, if you've been to the ER, you know the joys of that experience, in days, especially in days of the coronavirus. I was there for about eight hours before they called Iowa City. Iowa City wanted to see me right away, so they rushed me by ambulance up to Iowa City. And I was seen overnight uh, by some of the best uh, ears, nose, and throat doctors, uh, specialists, really, in the, in the country, some of the best in the country. And they determined that I had, here we go, big words, a non-displaced fracture of the cricoid cartilage. You didn't know you had one of those, did you? Neither did I. And a possible fracture to the cartilage above that in my Adam's apple. So basically, my throat is broken. And um, they don't want it to move. It's non-displaced means it broke and then it went back in place. And if it moves... It could kill me, okay? Just to let you know that, it could cut off my airway and blah, blah, blah. But Jay will do a tracheotomy on, on me if he needs to mid-sermon, okay? So don't worry about that. Uh, so I am restrained to living a boring life for at least the next two weeks. Uh, no CrossFit, no jujitsu, no heavy lifting, no yelling, no loud talking, no being my normal obnoxious self, no solid food. Thankfully, coffee and bourbon are liquid. So... That means my next few sermons are going to be a little bit different, okay? Um, the content will be the same, but as I told the men yesterday, I'm going to have to somehow disconnect my emotions from my preaching, which I've watched Alex do that for a long time, so I'm going to try to be like him um, for the next few weeks, so yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So bear with me. I cannot project my voice, um, but I can hear my echo out there, so I think it's probably getting to me. Are we good? We're good. Praise the Lord. Okay, let me pray for us, and we'll get in this morning. Gracious Father, you are good to us. You are good, and you only do what is good. And your grace to us in Jesus Christ is unfathomable, and even the, just the common grace of this beautiful weather this morning is just really good for us. And so I thank you for those who are able to come out and worship with us again. I see faces that I haven't seen in six weeks, and so I'm really grateful for that. And I'm thankful that we can gather together in this beautiful, on this beautiful day, in this beautiful courtyard, and we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would help us as there's going to be distractions and noises and roofers banging and car alarms going off and kids running and and birds doing what birds do. There's going to be distractions, but um, I'm thankful that we can worship you. And I pray that you would just keep our, our mind and our heart focused on what's important, and you would anoint 
my mind to think your thoughts and to speak your words, and you would change hearts this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> so last week was a really important sermon to help us get our bearings in the Gospel of Matthew and to understand the context and intent of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I cannot recap all of that for you this morning, so if you missed it, you really do need to listen and go back and listen to that podcast. But here's the gist to kind of get us going. Jesus has showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago as the long-awaited Messiah King that has finally come to the earth to set up his kingdom. He fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies to confirm that he was the king, and the Father God even anointed him at his baptism and affirmed his identity as the one and only Son of God in whom he is well pleased. Then Jesus begins his ministry, and he begins his ministry in kind of a unique way. He has what he's calling a kingdom ministry. He's bringing a kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he's not just preaching, nor is he wielding a sword and setting up an earthly kingdom. He's calling disciples to himself. He's teaching these disciples how to embody his message and live a kingdom life now. And lastly, he's healing the sick and performing miracles and casting out demons. He's bringing social change through his ministry. Jesus' kingdom ministry is about creating spiritual, physical, ethical, mental, and relational wholeness. It's about human flourishing in its fullest sense. So the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it looks like to live life inside Jesus' kingdom. Now, last week I said something that always confuses people. I said that Jesus' ministry was political. He is a king, after all, and his kingdom has a constitution and a bill of rights, and that's what these beatitudes are. But here's an important distinction for us to keep in mind. These instructions are primarily for the Christian. Indeed, we're going to see that they're only possible for the Christian because supernatural grace is required to possess them. If anybody wants to have these beatitudes, they need the supernatural grace of God first. That means Jesus' government, listen, is not meant to be legislated from the Capitol building. It's not meant for unbelievers. Jesus isn't asking for unbelievers to act like or believe like believers before they get into his kingdom. He's not asking unchristians to somehow behave Christianly before they get into the kingdom. No, these are more like the family rules, the house rules. The kingdom, in one sense, is only believers. But we have to keep in mind that though Jesus is primarily giving the house rules for believers, he still intended the world to see them and know them 
if, if only to be judged by them and see their inability to earn their way into the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew wants us to see this distinction right away. I want you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. First, Jesus is preaching an outdoor sermon, right? Pretty fitting. Maybe we'll just do this whole sermon series. Can we, can we do this outdoor tent for seven months? Who's got, who's got dibs on, on December, huh? Right, can we make it? Doubt it. Jesus preaching an outdoor sermon. He does not have the blessings of these speakers. And so he goes up on a mountain for a couple different reasons. One, because his voice is going to carry on a mountain and they could sit below him and his voice is going to carry, right? But I want you to see something here kind of specifically. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat, when he sat down, look, his disciples came to him. We have two groups of people. We have the crowds and we have the disciples. Crowds are always a mixture of people. There's going to be good and there's going to be bad. There's going to be moral. There's going to be immoral. There's going to be believers and unbelievers, Jews and Greeks. There's going to be, it's going to be a mixed multitude of people. There's going to be come peop, some people coming to hear the message of Jesus just because he's doing miracles and he's feeding people. And they're going, oh, I'm going to see this guy, right? I'm going to check this out. Matthew's already told us in chapter 4, verse 25, that great crowds were following Jesus from Syria and Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan, that Jesus was literally going, going viral. Everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted to check him out. And so he goes up on the mountain and for Jewish re readers, obviously this is so he can project his voice, but for, for Jewish readers, this is also a direct reference to Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses would go up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. See, powerful and important things happen on mountaintops in the scriptures. Mountains in antiquity were always a place where humanity and the divine or humanity and the gods met. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's about to give his new Torah, his new law, his new Ten Commandments, his new teaching. The man of God, the son of God is going up on the mountain and he's going to commune with the gods and he's going to tell the people what this new kingdom looks like. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes up there and he sits down, but then look what it says. His disciples came to him. Here's the distinction Matthew is wanting us to see. When Jesus goes up to the mountain, he leaves the crowds, he sits down, and he begins to teach his disciples. There's a big difference between the crowds and the disciples. Disciples are people who already believe Jesus is the Messiah King, and they're already set to follow him in all areas of their life. They're, they're like, we already know you're the king. We already know you're the Messiah. Now show us how to live. Show us how to embody your kingdom. Show us how to be like you. 
See, these disciples are no longer looking to be in charge of their life. They've handed the reins over to Jesus. Jesus is their king. What he says goes for them. The crowd is still checking him out. The crowd is still unsure. They're listening, but not convinced. So we see Jesus kind of separate himself from the crowds for a bit, start discipling his disciples. And what we're going to see at the end of the sermon is that the crowds leave Jesus astonished at his teaching. Okay, so that means he starts off with disciples only and the crowds start following him. The crowds start coming and listening to his teaching and he kind of blows their mind. So here's the lesson. Jesus' teaching is primarily for his disciples and yet it is still missional in the sense that it's meant to be overheard by the crowds. It's meant to be understood by the crowds. The crowds are the secondary audience. They understand it. They are blown away by it. Some people reject it and walk away. Some people, you know, oh, that's interesting. They might not really believe it, and they definitely don't shape their lives around it. Now, listen, that's exactly what I try to do each week. My sermons are primarily for disciples of Jesus. I want them to be T-bone steaks, right, rather than something from the candy drawer. But I want them to be missional in the sense that you understand, other outsiders understand what I'm saying, they're accessible to those who are still curious and checking Jesus out to see if he's real or whatever. And maybe I can answer some questions that are keeping you from embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's primarily teaching the believer, the disciple. And now listen, here's what's interesting. For the one who is already a disciple, these beatitudes are going to be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, amen, amen. You're going to get it. You might get it even though you don't quite understand it. There's going to be something that resonates with you. They sound good, right, and true. But listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're a part of the crowd that was listening to Jesus, then these Beatitudes are going to sound absolutely absurd. They're going to sound ridiculous. And they should. So let's... Let's go ahead and look at the first one. Chapter 5, I'll, I'll start with verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the first thing I need to do is help us understand this word blessed because it's kind of like a religious word that we've got in our vernacular, but most of us probably don't understand what it means. And, and there's a, actually, there's a really big problem with this word. This word is a translation or transliteration of a Greek word, makarios, makarios. Now, the problem is there is no English equivalent to this word. You will see it translated most of the time as blessed. A lot of the time, it's translated, translated as fortunate. And 
Sometimes it's, trans, it's even translated happy. Happy are those, happy are those, happy are those. But the problem is none of those words really convey the original meaning of the word makarios in the Greek. And it doesn't translate this concept that Jesus was trying to get across. Remember, when Jesus came, he's stepping into a worldview that was dominated by two modes of thinking. Greek thought, Greco-Roman philosopher king, and Second Temple Judaism of the prophet and the sage. And both of these worldviews coalesced. They had a similar understanding of this word makarios, but it's different than, from ours. And I'm going to say this, unless the, most uh, modern scholars have already told us this is, what it, this is the best translation we can get, and it's not perfect, but it means human flourishing. It means human flourishing. Now, I want you to see what this looks like from the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go to Psalm chapter 1. And this is the way the psalmist describes human flourishing. Again, it says, blessed, or I'm going to say this, flourishing is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Look, here it is. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, here's, here's a picture of human flourishing. Here's what it looks like to be blessed. Here's what it looks like to be makarios. Here's what it looks like to be happy, to be a tree that is planted by rivers of living water that is flourishing in every season of its existence. Now, I want you to think about that. When you see a tree full of fruit, do you say, that tree is blessed by God? That tree, what did that tree do? That tree must be the most moral, most obedient, most good, right, and true tree. What did that tree do to deserve such fruitfulness? You don't think that's obvious, right? You say that tree is flourishing. That tree is lush. That tree is doing what it was meant to do. It's flourishing. Now here it is. Of course, there's a sense where it is quote unquote blessed by God. God created to do that and it's living, it's doing what it was created to do. But here's, here's the point that I'm trying to get God created a tree to flourish, and so that tree is flourishing. He isn't blessing it in the sense of rewarding it for good behavior. Now, that's important for us. It's key to understanding all the Beatitudes. This is the sense of makarios in the Beatitudes. It is not meant to say, if you do these things, God will bless you for doing them. And right now is where my voice would start getting loud because this is an important point that I want you to pay attention to. The Beatitudes are not if-then statements. Hear me. The Beatitudes are not 
do this and get that. Be poor in spirit and then you will go to heaven when you die. You will get the kingdom of heaven. Do this, get that. That is not what the Beatitudes are. Listen, they are descriptions of a flourishing life and commendations on the good life. There are people, a person walking by a tree and going, that tree is Makarios, that tree is blessed, that tree is flourishing. Jesus is walking by a person who is poor in spirit and he's describing that person. He's saying, blessed are they. Human flourishing are they. They are flourishing. This is the good life. The good life is one that is poor in spirit and those who are in the kingdom are gonna be like that. This is the good life, the life of discipleship to King Jesus. So here's a big word I might use a lot. Macarisms. That's what these things are called. That's what scholar call, scholars call these macarisms off of the Greek word makarios. And Jesus's macarisms are, here they are, grace-based, wisdom invitation to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. All right, now listen, but here's the problem. We're not the problem. Jesus is describing the life of a Christian. He's describing what the tree looks like. But there's people in the crowd who aren't Christians. And for them, it's an invitation to a new life. It's an invitation to a new way of being in the world. It's, a new, it's an invitation to new, a new orientation to even the spiritual life. He's saying, do you want to flourish in this life and in the life to come? Come, listen. Listen to my teaching. Believe my teaching. And he says this. I'm going to put it in this vernacular. Jesus says, flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I'm going to tell you this. This beatitude is the doorway to all of the kingdom of God. If you can't get through this beatitude, if you can't get your mind around this beatitude, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is the top of the top. This is virtue number one. This is the summum bonum of the Christian life. What does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Well, to be poor in spirit is ultimately in regards to man's attitude toward himself. It's your attitude towards yourself. It's your idea Of, the, of, your, of your spiritual value. Let's say it like that. 
What spiritual resources do you believe you possess? What makes you valuable to God? Why would God pay attention to you? Why would God think of you? Does, do you feel yourself to be a pretty good dude? A pretty good woman. When you think of yourself in relation to others, are you in that top, top 20%? Is there anything in you, anything that at all that could get you favor with God? Now, I want you to know, this concept right here, Jesus says, the way into the kingdom, there's, there's a lot of roads out there that seem right to a man, but there's only one road and it's very narrow and very few find it. This is why very few people embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why there's a lot of other religions out there in the world that make a whole lot more sense than Christianity does. Nearly every religion in the world is basically a ladder that you climb. And as you climb the ladder, you become a better and better and better person. And you have more spiritual value. You, you become more moral. You become more educated. You become a better citizen. All these things. And that kind of gets you favor with the gods. You know you're a good person because you can look at the masses and go, look how, look how much better I am than they. God clearly approves of me. And Christianity, Jesus Christ has the audacity to start his sermon, the most famous sermon of all time, with this. Blessed, flourishing are those who are spiritually bankrupt. What? Blessed are those who can't make it in the world. Blessed are those who can't get their act together. Blessed are those who see no value in and of themselves, spiritually speaking. Flourishing are those who know what fools they are. Now, one scholar referred to these beatitudes as black gold. And that picture has kind of stuck with me in my head. Black gold. They don't look, they, they look like nothing. They look like a rock on the outside. They look like refuse. They look like something you just throw away, but they're of immeasurable value immeasurable worth. In the late 1950s, one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said of this verse that there is nothing that can show you the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian better than this. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
the world says, blessed are the ones who believe in themselves, express themselves, realize the power that is inside of themselves and lets the whole world know how great they are. Jesus says, blessed, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Our culture says, blessed are the self-confident, blessed are the self-assured, blessed are the self-reliant. Here's how the prophet Isaiah described being poor in spirit. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is God speaking. I dwell, God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. What? What? For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You know what contrite means? Contrite literally means crushed, broken, dust, humiliated. The high and holy and exalted king dwells with those who are crushed in spirit, who are humiliated, who are broken. Yes, he does. And he does it to revive their hearts. Jesus doesn't look out on the world and he doesn't look for the strong swimmers. He doesn't look for the ones that are making it on their own. They're crushing life. They're killing it at work. They're killing it at home. They're killing it with their spiritual life and all they need is a little pick-me-up. All they need is a little shot, just a little bit of adrenaline, just a, a little bit of steroid. That's what they need. They need some spiritual steroids to help them on their way. Jesus Christ looks for the crushed, the spiritually dead, and he makes them alive. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to see God as he is and to see ourselves as we actually are. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It is to look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. It is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and we will never do anything that could, mend, could commend us to God. It is to be like David who said, I am but a worm, 
Or Isaiah who said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Is there any message in all the messaging in the world that is more countercultural than this? It's black gold. Now, don't be confused. This is not self-hatred. This is not groveling. This isn't moping around like we're a bunch of losers. This is nothing short of an awakening to the reality of our spiritual condition in the light of a holy God. God needs nothing. What could I give him? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And of course, if we want to know what does it look like to be poor in spirit, all we have to look at is Jesus, the only one who's ever been poor in spirit or actually realized what it, look, what it means to be poor in spirit and actually lived his life as one who is poor in spirit and yet rich towards God. The one place in the Bible that describes, that Jesus himself describes his own heart, Jesus says this of himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Maybe there, Jesus wasn't trying to win over a bunch of dudes there. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, poor in spirit. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, what does he do? Does he come riding a brilliant white stallion like a king's horse? No, he comes riding on a donkey. Jay, will you hand me that paper right there? Listen to the way our profession said it this morning. We believe the word was in the form of God, that's Jesus, and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, born in our likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Think about the humility, the poverty of spirit it would have taken to go to the cross for self-absorbed people. Can you think of an arrogant ant or an arrogant worm. Imagine a worm that thinks it rules the world. Can you imagine yourself dying to save such a worm? And yet, I, I don't even think that's an adequate comparison between sinful man and a holy God. Now, 
here's the quandary of this beatitude as I close. If you're in the world and you're looking to crush it and you're living, looking to live your best life now, this is probably not good, good news to you. Blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They got nothing to offer God. But here's the deal. This is the miracle of grace. If God, through the Holy Spirit, has preached the gospel to you, and the Spirit of God has moved into your heart, and he's turned on that spiritual light bulb that's called regeneration, and he's brought a dead person to life, this is the best news in the universe. Wait, wait, wait. If I got in because I was spirit, spiritually bankrupt, like, what does it take to keep me in? Oh, he got me in off of his resources alone. I'm not keeping myself in, right? I am saved by sheer grace. I am being changed by sheer grace. I have the pleasure of God by sheer grace. I am blessed and happy and fortunate by sheer grace. I could never earn it. Nothing could ever take it away from me. And what I'm experiencing now, no matter what comes in my life, hell or high water, blessing or cursing, I can be happy and fortunate and flourish now and even more so in the age to come. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't become good, right, moral, true, perfect. No, you admit your bankruptcy. You admit it. You see it. You confess it. And you turn to Jesus Christ, who, once he comes inside, he comes in your heart by faith, he brings all his resources with him. <laughs> black gold. Now, this is the hardest lesson to learn. It's a lesson that you can check off on a Bible study, but it's also a lesson that we grow out of very quickly in the Christian faith if we're not careful. Because God does change us and we do become more moral and he does gives us, give us better theology and he does help us be better citizens. And so slowly we can start basing our relationship with God on how well we're doing and we lose sight of this. We are never not spiritually bankrupt in ourselves. Never. Never move on from this great truth. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you. There's no other religion like this on the planet. It's not a ladder that we climb to get up to you. If anything, it's a ladder that you climbed down to us. And so I pray that these Beatitudes, these Macario statements would be good news to your people and they would bring a freedom. That they are loved and accepted and forgiven and given grace by a good, gracious God. Not because they're good in themselves, but because we are broken and contrite in spirit and we need your mending, we need your healing, we need your life in us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins and we need you to make us alive. Would you make people alive even now? 
And as repentant Christians come to the Lord's table this morning, would you give us grace? Would you remind us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin? Would you remind us of the riches in Christ that you've deposited into spiritual beggars like us? Would you remind us of the black gold? On the night that you betrayed Jesus, when you were going to the cross for spiritual beggars like us, sat down to have a meal with your disciples and you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And took the cup of wine and you said, this is my blood that's shed for the remission of your sins. And Father, you, you tell us in Corinthians to eat this meal together as often as we come together and to do it in a manner that's worthy unto you with repentant hearts. So I pray that Christians hearing my voice this morning, if they detect pride in their own hearts, they have a sense of being better than others. They have a sense of being more moral, more good, more intelligent, and they think that that somehow gains them favor with you, that you would give them eyes of faith to see how antithetical that attitude is towards the gospel. And you would bring about repentance in their heart and they would repent before they come to this table and eat damnation into their own soul. I pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.